Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are in our last message of our series, Last Instructions for Those Who Suffer, in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. We've noticed that the attacks of Satan have been in the framework of, of our mind, of uh, particularly how he deceives us with particular ideas um, about God and how he feels about us. We see the willingness of people today uh, to follow their feelings alone, to know what truth is, um, to follow their bodily desires, to think that that's truth, or follow the culture. And this helps to create a bias that the Apostle Paul calls a blindness, and that Jesus said causes uh, the truth to be snatched from them. And this desire to believe lies becomes acute when we are in the midst of hardship because we want to blame God or we want to blame others. So uh, let's all stand and take a look at our passage. And because we're up against it time-wise, I'm just going to read the two verses that we are covering today in 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. So verse 10 is starting right, right here, okay? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so, Lord, we entreat your Holy Spirit to be our teacher today and to transform our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The popular novelist Vince Rouse writes in the Los Angeles Times Magazine about a time when he was going through hardships and he was blaming God. One night he reflected in bed and he realized something significant about his anger and his disbelief and he remembers that night thinking, as I lay in bed with the empty hostile cosmos pressing down, a thought popped into my head. I am angry at a God I don't believe in, end quote. Now, such a thought maybe doesn't do a whole lot for us, which I assume the majority in this room are Christian theists, so you believe that there's a God. And if you don't, by the way, you're still welcome to be here. We love that you're here, and I hope that, uh, that God will woo you to him uh, as a result. But... Um, I think Peter is proposing, really with the whole book, not just in this passage, that the foundation of reality starts with or is founded upon our view of God and his promises. And this becomes an anchor for our souls. Our church staff has recently read a book on miracles, God's supernatural intervention with things like healings, angels, answered prayer, a host of other ways that God intersects with our lives here on earth. And it was indeed enlightening, in, in, at least for me, in showing how we suffer sometimes from just too small of a faith, Okay. And I was encouraged to pray more often, to pray more specifically for God to supernaturally intervene in people. 
And whatever I say henceforth, I don't want to take away from God's desire or ability to work in our lives. But with that said, it seems that Peter is aligning with the idea that one of the greatest miracles is God doing a work in us to strengthen our faith, our resolve, our relationship with him in the midst of suffering. I mean, you pray for it, but the marriage is not fixed. The sickness does not go away. The money does not come in. The job did not arrive. Yet there are people that in those situations are still faithful to Christ. I have pictures in my mind of, for instance, Julie White singing to the congregation after treatment with cancer and standing next to me as she could barely stand and had to put her hand on my shoulder just to keep from toppling over. Or Lynn Oatman greeting a crew at her hospital room with joy. We couldn't enter the room because of her treatment. But she liked chocolate, so we were throwing Hershey, Hershey chocolate kisses into the room. And it was a joyous time. Or I think of Cliff and Terry Meyer suffering the loss of a grandchild. But they grieved with great hope. Or Garrett and Kristen Smith talking to me about a pregnancy that they had. I'll never forget this. I was at a wedding um, reception downtown. I got this call I had to take. And here they were telling me, we just found out our baby is severely handicapped, is not going to live outside the womb. What should we do? And they thought the best way as Christian theists to recognize the gift of God and the life that God was giving them was to allow that baby to come to term and to, and to have a funeral to give value to that child, which is what they did. That baby did not live very long at all. Hours, not days. And I mention these because God did not heal the body. And he allowed, in some cases, for death to come. The prayers were not answered, at least in the way that we had asked. However, the faith and the resolve for these people to love God, look to him, and not lose faith, I think is no less miraculous than if God were to extend the life of one of those who died or heal the cancer. Now, I'm still going to pray for those things. But God can say no to that and wants us to endure in the midst of it. That is why I think in 1 Peter, Peter does not tell them Pray that God will let you escape the suffering. That was never the prayer. He instructs them instead to look to what God is doing in and through them. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
William Breitbart has been the chairman of the Department of Psych Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he specializes in end-of-life treatment for terminally ill cancer patients. And for much of his career, he has been surrounded by suffering people who just want to die. He said, when I walked in the room, my patients would say, I have only three months to live. It's all I have. I see no value or purpose to living. And one of his patients, a former IBM exec, who had been diagnosed with colon cancer, said, everybody said how important it is to have a positive attitude, but I just want to jump in the grave. And Breitbart heard many stories from patients who wanted to end their life, and they asked for prescriptions for assisted suicide. And what he discovered was that these patients, in his own words, had no meaning to life. Now, he knew he could treat depression with drugs or therapy, but he was stumped in how to treat meaninglessness. He said, what I suddenly discovered was the importance of meaning, the search for meaning, the need to create meaning, the ability to experience meaning, was a basic motivating force of human behavior. We were not taught this stuff at medical school, end quote. So meaning, it seems, is critical to patients wanting to endure their pain. And I would submit to you it's the same with Christians in suffering. When we lose sight of God in the midst of pain, one, that it's temporary, and two, that his grace is active in our life, then we're pulling the rug out from under meaning. So we learn from this passage that suffering is temporary. We've seen this before. Paul said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So saying that suffering will not last um, means suffering is, the, the time frame for suffering is little compared to eternity. And Peter himself said, in this you rejoice that now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. We said it before that God permits his children to go through the furnace. And when he does that, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. God has called those who suffer to experience his grace. And this fuels our testimony to lift our hands up to the glory of God in the midst of the suffering. One author tells how his mother lost a son and says, this is where my mother got her soft eyes. And that is why other mothers ran to her when they had lost a child. Suffering had done something for her that the easy way out would not have provided. Suffering is meant by God to add the the grace notes of life. By God being a God of grace, it speaks of his goodness and kindness and love being applied to us even during suffering. And again, this does not mean that we always escape suffering, but he calls us into relationship with him. There are some things 
that we never learn, never experience, never understand without suffering. It's more than just a hope. It's an assertion of what God will do. And we see in this whole section, this whole book of the grace that God gives the humble. And what is that grace? Well, Peter names four ways. We'll get to that in a second. God will vindicate faithful believers who have suffered. And when we meet great hardship, we are driven to kind of what I call the irreducible minimum or the the bedrock of faith. It's then, then that we discover those things that cannot be shaken. Now, granted, there's some suffering, and I've seen it happen, will drive a Christian to bitterness. It'll drive a Christian to despair. And I've talked to some where they are depleted of faith. And then there are others who have a trusting certainty that a gracious Heavenly Father will never cause his child a needless heartache. So there are things that we can reject that God is providing us. But I think what Peter is getting us to look at is this is what God wants to do, can do, will do. What possibly will God try to do in the midst of suffering? Well, there are four verbs, Greek verbs, that are given here. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. They're all in the future tense. So he's speaking of a completion that will take place in the future during the eternal glory of Christ. So there's something that we as believers look forward to. Uh, The truth gives us encouragement. It gives us hope now. These words honestly seem very closely related. It's hard to even distinguish a couple of them. But they all speak to God's power. Philippians 1.6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. You know, if I'm facing surgery, I trust there'll be a recovery that means I can rest now with the approach of surgery or in the middle of surgery or in recovery that God will bring healing. Or when I break a bone, I endure a cast knowing that there's healing in the future. That's kind of the idea here. So the first is restore. It can be translated to perfect, has the idea of putting something in order to make it complete, making it whole, whether it's a body that has been injured from, in this case, persecution with many of the Christians that Peter was talking to, or maybe the emotional pain of suffering, God can and will fix all of that. You may be damaged now, but there'll be a day in which you are made complete. Whatever is lacking today, you're not doomed to a future of that. So we do not have to despair in our suffering because we have the hope of restoration in the future. And then he says, confirm. It's the idea of God keeping or preserving the believer in suffering. There there can be a solidity to our faith that we're resolute in the direction of life, 
of God's sustaining power. Again, I know suffering can cause some people to just collapse because they lose sight of these things. Or it can make us unwavering. Like the examples I gave earlier. When a person goes through suffering, they can experience the faithfulness of God. And this means the suffering is kind of tempered by that fire and there's a resoluteness. It becomes like our faith becomes like toughened steel that I'm going to rest in God keeping me. Like a lady after the first service who just found out she had cancer. I said, how you doing? She goes, I'm really okay. God's got me. That's what I'm talking about. There's strengthen. This is the idea of God giving strength to bear all sufferings without wavering in the faith. God enables the one suffering to endure with faithfulness. I mean, listen, I'm still going to pray for healing, and I'm moved by stories of people being healed. But there's something glorious and precious to see a believer who lives through the hardship without healing, without escape. And they remain faithful to Christ. Their, their spirit sweetened by the suffering. God is there to strengthen us in the midst of hardship. A life with no suffering or discipline, it can become a flabby life. And one doesn't know what his faith means until it's been tried by the furnace of affliction. I think there's something doubly precious about a faith, which is endured pain and sorrow and disappointments. And then the last one is establish. It means to lay or establish a foundation. I think uh, suffering has a way to cause us to be firmly rooted in trust in the confidence that Christ gives us and in Christ alone. Listen. Some of you may be in your suffering. You've been threatened with the loss of family, with the loss of a job, uh, money, possessions. This has a way of clearing the cobwebs, does it not? And we see Christ as the only thing that's indispensable. And all the other stuff is discretionary. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. Are these works that we do or God? Well, the God of grace does these. We can enjoy them or we can deny them in the present, but it's God who's doing that work. And who gets the glory? Verse 11 answers that. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This looks to God's power and rule over a world. We know there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. And the world looks so bad right now. When you look at the political situation, the social situation, the moral situation of just our country, the idea that to him be the dominion forever and ever, I mean, it doesn't appear to some that God is sovereign over world affairs, but he is, particularly when you look at the history of God with his people. His reign will come to completion when Christ comes a second time to set up his kingdom. And his reign in the lives of believers now 
is seen that he restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes them. No matter what the doctor says, no matter what happens to the family, to the job, to the money, it's still true that he restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes. So he wields a mighty hand on behalf of his people. And so we're to take comfort in this, knowing that we are on the side of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Again, the promises of God are to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. He does that to his people of faith. I recently read an article um, given reasons why this author did not believe, an article by a theologian, did not believe that God has made these promises that he'll keep salvation for us. Um, he said to believe that God keeps such a promise is to supersede man's free will and it has a negative impact on witnessing, discipleship, and personal holiness. He brushed aside rewards and he claimed that all covenants are conditional and therefore can be lost. And the only security we have is what we get when we are consistently obedient to God. Now, I have refutations for just about every one of those points, all right? And when you go to Galatians 3, it goes to great lengths explaining that the Abrahamic covenant is not conditional. And since we are in Christ, we are recipients. And we can argue all day long about the verbs, tenses, and the context and the meaning of the word and the, uh, of the text. And there's nothing wrong with that, and we should do that. But from a practical standpoint, and in light of suffering, I cannot imagine a more deflating message than, you better not mess up. Because you could lose it all if you disobey. And by the way, why can't anybody give me a definitive answer of how much disobedience does it take to lose your salvation? I can never hear that. Nobody can tell you. Now listen, I don't, I'm not trying to disparage the spiritual life of people who believe that. I, I don't know that. That's between them and God. Just like, you know, it doesn't make you a person who walks with God just because you believe that God keeps his promises on salvation. So I'm just saying they're mistaken, Okay. I don't know anything else about the person's relationship with God. They can still walk with God closely. So there's no reason to cast aspersions on anybody who doesn't believe that way. But I think that uh, it's just mistaken. And I would not consider it sound doctrine. I think the foundation of our faith is better built on love and safety in Christ than fear in keeping my performance up or else I'm going to have the rug pulled out from under me. I don't see Peter saying any of that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He's saying in 1 Peter 1-2, we are chosen by God. We are given a new birth into a living hope in 1 Peter 1-3 that we provided an inheritance that can never perish 
in 1 Peter 1.4. We are shielded by God's power in 1 Peter 1.5. That we've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have uh, uh, God is building us into a spiritual house. We have a holy and royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to him. People who suffer need that kind of hope. That's the hope that Peter provides. They need reassurance of God's protection and love and grace. And for me, (laughs) I like landing there, okay, of our position in Christ, being covered by Christ, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established by Christ. So that's why we can say, to him, be the dominion forever and ever. And so my challenge to you is, is that what you're living? Or does it knock you out when the doctor gives you bad news or the, ans- the prayer isn't answered or there's a relationship that goes sour? I'm not minimizing the pain, but in terms of faith, we can be resolute. God is still in control. God's still sovereign. His grace is still active in my life. And he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That's the message. Let's pray.